Good morning, church. Thank God that we can gather for a time of corporate worship once again. We will continue our sermon series on the, uh, on the sermon series, The Greatest Love Story Ever Told from Creation to Christ, the People and the Land. Two weeks ago, Pastor Isaac preached about Jesus as the Passover Lamb of God. He is the main cause of the Last Supper. Do you remember that? And last week, Pastor Leonard preached about Jesus as a tabernacle. Emmanuel, the Word, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And today, we will look at Jesus as the bronze serpent who, where we can have redemption through the one lifted up. Let me share with you one story. It's a real story anyway. What happened recently? One of our most... Uh, heavily discussed question when some of our young leaders gathered for a time of case study on the issue of homosexuality was whether we should tell our non-believing friends that homosexuality is a sin. They are non-believers anyway and should we actually impose God's judgment on them? Of course, we want to approach this conversation with care, respect and gentleness but the big, bigger question for us to think about is, should we confront sins? Yes, no, or it depends. What do you think? We don't like to be judged. Therefore, yeah, don't like to be judged. Therefore, we refrain from judging others as well. Not to mention when it comes to God's judgment. Because God's judgment would mean condemnation, punishment, and destruction. It is an unpleasant topic to talk about. Even, even we know that such meaning can clearly be attested to in the Bible. But what if I were to tell you that God's judgment would also, means, would also mean justification, salvation and deliverance? If God is a God, Lord of all, He's of course going to judge the whole world. But as we look at Numbers chapter 21, Today, we will notice that God's judgment comes hand in hand with His means of redemption. While God judges us of our sins, He at the same time provides for us His redemption. This is our God. He is holy, but at the same time, at the same time, He's also merciful. So based on Numbers chapter 21, we will reflect on God's judgment, His redemption, and what does this mean to us in our daily lives? So let us commit this time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you. We pray that, Lord, you speak to us. May your spirit come and convict our hearts to cause us come to awareness of in what way you want us to make a U-turn back to you today. We thank you for your grace and mercy, for you judge us of our sins, but at the same time, you prepare a means for us to be redeemed. So we want to commit each and every one of us into your hand and commit ourselves, our time into your hand. Christ name we pray. Amen. The book of Numbers, like its name, contains many statistics, population counts and other numerical data. It documents priestly instructions for handling the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle. It spells out the placement of each tribe when they're camped. And it has two census results. The first census is recorded in chapter 1, taken in second year after the Exodus, as they camped at Mount Sinai. 
that was where they were then just came out from Egypt, right? And the second census in chapter 26, taken 38 years later, just before they were to enter into the promised land, they were there then on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho in before across the Jordan River. So on top of this, the most significant of the narrative is actually the people's long wandering in the desert, desert of Sinai, Kadesh Barnea, and their eventual arrival at the banks of Jordan River across the Promised Land. And on the map, the journey of the Promised Land should have just taken them several months by right. But they ended up wandering in the wilderness for how long? 40 years. Why? Because these people constantly tested God's patience. Those whom God had redeemed from slavery in Egypt and those to whom God had shown His grace at Mount Sinai responded with indifference, ingratitude, and repeated acts of rebellion. Now let's look at Numbers chapter 21. When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Etherim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord, If you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. The Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. They completely destroyed them and their towns, so the place was named Hormah. Horma means destruction. And if we were to trace back to Numbers chapter 14, we know that Israel had been clobbered and chased all the way to Horma because of their disobedience to God and they have turned away from God then. But now at the same place in Numbers chapter 21, the passage today, God granted them a total reversal of that thorough defeat. This vow they made to God in verse 2 speaks of their full dependence on God for their victory as well as their determination to fulfill their vow. So God, because of this vow, granted them the victory and through this, restored their confidence. But soon after this victorious event, they fell into their grumbling spirit again. And now let's do a survey on their history of grumbling spirit a perpetual sinful behaviour of these wilderness people. Back in Numbers chapter 11, they had complained about their hardship and food. Miriam and Aaron had complained about Moses' leadership about and, and food. Eh? Sorry. Miriam and Aaron had complained about Moses' leadership and talked against him, number 12. And the people had complained about how difficult it looked to conquer the giants in the land, so they refused to enter to the promised land, Numbers 14. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron, accused Moses of killing God's people in Numbers 16. And right before our chapter today, the people contended with Moses over the issue of no water, Numbers 20. And now, in our chapter today, verse 4, they travelled from Mount Hall along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up 
out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. There is no water, there is, there is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Earlier this year, I shifted out from my room in Queenstown to Clementi, and this change has ushered me into a re new rhythm of life as I decided to cycle to work. One day, one morning, it was gloomy, but I still decided to ride to work. But just as I expected it to be, it rained cats and dogs halfway through. After a few days of riding to work, I started to remember the convenience I used to enjoy when I was staying in Queenstown. My workplace here is Queenstown Baptist Church. I stay in just across. So I used to just walk to work for five minutes, walk along a whole sheltered pathway. But now when I thought about it, riding my bike 20 to 30 minutes, rain or shine, every day now, wow, I started to murmur unknowingly without me noticing it. Just like how the Israelites murmured against God and Moses about the good food they used to eat when they were in Egypt. The good food they used to eat for free when they were in Egypt. Until one day, God confronted me. He reminded me that it was Him who has led me into this new season of life. So instead of yearning to the convenience of the good old Queenstown days, I should embrace this new season of change with obedience and a grateful heart. So coming back to Numbers chapter 21, why did the author of the book of Numbers put two such contrasting stories side by side? Immediately after they won the battle, then the next episode is they fell into their sins. I guess and what in, on one hand, it is to show us that while the Israelites were progressing toward dependence on the Lord, wandering in the wilderness, there was still a long way to go before they could enter into the promised land. And on the other hand, this contrast reflects the reality of humanity to us, reminding us how forgetful, how prideful, how ungrateful God's people can be. Flushed with victory, their confidence now was on themselves, in themselves. They forgot that their victory over the army of Arad was a victory granted to them from God in response to their solemn pledge to Him. And now, because of their dissatisfaction, they detested God's provision. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cause of Discipleship, says, the moment we begin to feel satisfied that we are making some progress along the road of sanctification, it is all the more necessary to repent and confess that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And this is very true. The moment when we think that we have made some progress in overcoming sins, the next moment we will be defeated if we do not stay vigilant. Proverbs 16 verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before we fall. So let us pause here and ask ourselves this question. Do you see any resemblance between the grumbling, rebellious Israelite and yourself? Do you see any resembling between the grumbling, rebellious Israelites and yourself? On the heels of the great victory over the army of Arad, the Israelites fell on their own sword over the food issue. Yet we witness God's faithful provision of His healing grace. Verse 6. Then the Lord sent a venomous snake among them. 
that beat the people and many Israelites died, the people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone who was bitten by the snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. It is interesting to note that the people pleaded with God to take away the snakes. But God, instead of removing the snakes, He commanded Moses to make a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole so that people who suffer snake bite can be healed by just looking at it. But how possible is for a person who is bitten by a poisonous snake to be healed by just looking at a fake snake? Are you kidding me? When we read the different accounts of Jesus heals the blind, we actually notice that Jesus using different methods, right? In the Gospel of John, Jesus spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the blind's eyes. In Mark, he spat on the blind's eyes and put his hands on them. And then in Matthew, he simply touched the two blind men's eyes and they were healed. So the question is, how did Jesus accomplish the act of healing? Is it by using mud, saliva, or by touching them? Can this healing be carried out by just anyone? Do you, will you let me to put some mud and saliva on your eyes? And yeah, you'll be healed. If your question is no, then it is clear for us to know that it is not about what Jesus used to heal. It is about who Jesus is. In Him, there is this divine power. The healing power was not in the efficacy of the bronze serpent, but the grace of God, the God behind it. This is then, to the Israelites, was a test of faith. God wanted the Israelites to respond to His provided deliverance in faith. To live is to look at the bronze serpent. In one of my recent trips back home last October, I actually brought back along with me two packets of Holy Communion elements. In my mind, I was thinking I must confirm my mom's faith and then I get to baptize her. So one day, I was talking to her, checking in with my mom about confirming her faith. Then I found out that she actually wasn't ready, so I cannot proceed to baptize her. But I just told her that in any time, anywhere, when you are in need, you can call out to Jesus, okay? Remember to call out to Jesus. So I ended up with our conversation by praying with her. And one month later, my mom's sleep disc has been giving her problem with some unbearable pain on her leg. Since then, she has been in and out of the hospital for medical checkup, surgery and physiotherapy treatment. It has definitely not been, uh, been a journey that is not easy for her. But I thank God for the opportunity that I get to pray with her more often these days, in person or virtually. And it was just two, three weeks ago that my mom, when I was talking to her over the phone, she requested me to pray for her. She made that request, can you pray for me? I said, of course, this surprised me though. And in my heart, I was thinking, is this my mom's faith in responding to God? Only those who looked at the image of snake who survived the venom that coursed through their bodies. The rejection of God's grace brought a symbol of death. You're bitten by the snake, you do not look at the bronze snake, and you will die. The intervention of God's grace brought 
a source of life. And this interplay of snakes and deliverance through the bronze serpent symbolizes God's judgment and God's redemption. God's judged, God judged the people's ingratitude and rebellious spirit by sending the snakes among them, yet it was a bronze copy of the such same snake that became the means of their deliverance. So by the initiative of God, the curse becomes the basis for redemption. Later on in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, Jesus himself referenced this story when he was talking to Nicodemus. Jesus told Nicodemus, that a person must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was perplexed. What does this mean, being born again? Is it physical? Is it spiritual? In answer to Nicodemus' question, Jesus pointed back through the record of the history to Numbers chapter 21 and explained how he must be lifted up. Just like the bronze serpent, he said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Here, Jesus is pointing out that the bronze serpent was a means for God to give new physical life to Israelites after the plague of snakes as a form of punishment for their sins. But God, by God's provision, new life was graciously granted. And now, by the gracious provision of this same God, Jesus is saying that there should be new spiritual life, new spiritual eternal life through Jesus himself. And this bronze serpent then is a typology of Jesus' crucifixion. What recorded in Numbers 20, chapter 21 is a foreshadow of what Jesus would accomplish more than 1,000 years later. Nicodemus was now being challenged by Jesus to turn to him for new birth in much the same way as the ancient Israelites were commanded to turn to the bronze serpent for new life. And every reader of the, new test, of the Old Testament knew that eventually this bronze serpent of Moses was destroyed by King Hezekiah as mentioned in the pastor's voice just now as well. Because too many people idolized it, treated it as it has some inherent magical power. What spared the Israelite from the mortal threat of plague of snakes was God's grace. The means was the bronze serpent. So even, even we say that the bronze serpent is a typology of Jesus, we must say that Jesus is more than more than that, Jesus is more than the bronze serpent. He is not just a means. He is the Son of God. The Father has granted Him to have life in Him. Jesus Himself is the resurrection and the life, and those who believe have life in Him. Here then, the answer, in short, Jesus is life. And the answer to Nicodemus' question, how to enter the kingdom of God? How is it possible to, have, to be born again? And that's the answer. To Nicodemus, that the kingdom of God is seen or entered, new birth is experienced, and eternal life begins through the saving cross work of Christ received by faith. Next, the temple of advance quickens as Israelites approach the promised land from verse 10 onwards. Verses 10 to 35 can be divided into two subsections. First subsection is from verses 10 to 20, which is the travel log of the people, which contains a lot of places' name, interspersed with fragments of old poem, 
these fragments of old poem actually convey a sense of elation as the goal of their wandering comes into sight. The second subsection is from verses 21 to 35. It's actually a narrative explaining the detail about what happened when Israel arrived at the border of Amorite Kingdom. And now, please put, stay put with me, okay? We are going to look at the whole chunk of these verses from verse 10 all the way to 35. Stay with me, stay with me. Okay, it's going to be a challenge, okay? Don't fall asleep. <laughs> are you ready? Let's go. Verse 10. The Israelites moved on and camped at Oboth. Then they set out from Oboth and camped at Ayi Abarim, in the wilderness that faces Moab toward the sunrise. From there, they moved on and camped in Jared Valley. They set out from there and camped along the Arnon, which is in the wilderness extending into Amorite territory. The Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and Amorites. Then verses 14 to 15 is a victory song from the book of the Wars of the Lord. And what worths our attention here is verses 16 to 18. There is a breakthrough among the Israelites, which was an interesting departure of their grumbling spirit. Verse 16, from there, they continued to bear. Bear means well, the well where the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together and I will give them water. As we all know, according to history, the quest for water had been a constant problem during the wilderness experience. But here, with the new promise of water from God, the Israelites burst forth with triumphant words of song of the well. Verses 17 to 18, they sing, Spring up, O well, sing about it, about the well that the princes dug, the nobles of the people sang, the nobles with scepters and staffs. The association of princes and nobles with the digging of well is the use of power language to ensure that the well will last for a long time. And the travel log continue in verses 18b onwards. Then, they went from wilderness to Matana, and from Matana to Nahalil, from Nahalil to Bamoth, and from Bamoth to the valley of Moab, where the top of Pisgah overlooks the wasteland. Are you all still here? Good, yeah, checking. Okay, now I continue. Verses 21 to 35, it records the decisive moment of Israel fighting against Sihon, king of the Amorites, from verses 21 to 31, and then... The second section is Og king of Bashan from 32 to 35. Look at verse 21. Israel sent messengers to say to Sihon, king of the Amorites, Let us pass through your country. We will not turn aside into any field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will travel along the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon would not let Israel pass through his territory. He mustered his entire army and marched out into the wilderness against Israel. When he reached Jehaz, he fought with Israel. Israel, however, put him to the sword and took over his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, but only as far as the Ammonites because their border was fortified. Israel captured all the cities of the Amorites and occupied them, including Heshbon and all its surrounding settlements. Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and had taken from him all his land as far as Arnon. After Israel's defeat 
of Sion, king of the Amorites. The narrator here next in the few verses inserted a song to justify that Israel's right to hold the land. Verses 27, this is a song, it says, Came to he- come, come to Heshbon and let it be rebuilt. Let Sihon's king be rest- right, Sihon's city be restored. Fire went out from Heshbon, a blaze from the city of Sihon. It consumed Ar of Moab, the citizens of Anan's height. Woe to you, Moab! You are destroyed. People of Chemosh. Chemosh is the god of the Moabites. He has given up his sons as fugitives and his daughters as captives to Sihon, king of the Amorites. But we have overthrown them. Hishbon's dominion has been destroyed all the way to Dibon. We have demolished them all as far as Norfav, which extends to Mediba. This is a very old poem, apparently composed by the Amorite poet, to celebrate Sihon's defeat of Moab. Moab had previously occupied this land lying between the Anan and the Jabbok before Sihon conquered them. Now, as Israel has conquered Sihon, the Amorite king, the narrator asserted that Israel now is more superior than Moab and the Amorites. And now this land belongs to Israel and no one else is able or has right to come back to claim this land. So Israel settled in the land of the Amorite and this is a dramatic mark of accomplishment because after 40 years of sojourning in the wilderness of Sinai, now at last Israel had entered the land of the Amorite, the land that would become theirs, and they continued their, much, uh, continued their journey. Verse 32, And Moses had sent spies to Jazer. The Israelites captured its surrounding settlements and drove out the Amorite who were there. In this verse, we can pick up another interesting departure of their previous rebellious behaviour. If you can remember back in chapters 13 to 14, when Moses sent the spies to explore the land of Canaan, they brought back a report saying that the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. Despite Caleb's advice telling them that we should go out, take possession of the land, do not fear. But the men continued to spread a bad report among the people. They say, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. The land we explored devours those living in it and all people we saw there are of great size. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. But here, in Numbers chapter 21, the passage today, this time round, the spies must have done as they were instructed and they must have brought back a confident report telling Moses that they can go up and take possession of the land and therefore, they went up. They turned and went up along the road toward Bashan the Ark king of Bashan and his whole army marched out to meet them in the battle at Edre. The Lord said to Moses, Do not be afraid of him, for I have delivered him into your hands, along with his whole army and his land. Do to him what you did to Sihon king of the Amorite, who reigned in Heshbon. So they struck him down together with his sons and his whole army, leaving them no survivors, and they took possession of his land finished all the verses. Are you okay? 
<laughs> no, no, okay. Let us take some time to process a little bit. What did you just hear and what did you notice? What are some of our observations as we quickly um, go through from verses 10 to 35? We see a change of behaviour and attitudes of the Israelites. They had become a people with more directed path marching on what the promised land with more obedience and determination. Perhaps it's because they saw the, the, end, the end goal already. We sense the people's joy when they have the promise of water from the Lord, which is different from the usual grumbling spirit. The people sang joyful songs as well as victory songs after they won the battle. The spies brought back confident reports of the land instead of spreading fear out of their unbelief. God showed His unchanging grace to His people and granted them victory when they obeyed His command. And through these victories, God gave a sense of assurance that the promised land of Canaan would also be conquered and settled by them. And all in all, there is a renewed sense of God's delight in His people's obedience. There is a renewed sense of God's delight in His people's obedience. Another, another question for us to reflect on, what do this mean to us then? The deepest point of connection between the bronze serpent and Jesus was actually in the act of being lifted up. The Greek verb for lifted up used in the Gospel of John always combined the notions of being physically lifted up on the cross with notion of exaltation. The moment when Jesus was lifted up on the cross, He is also exalted. God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name. So, as we receive God's redemption through the one lifted up, how should we live our lives? How should we let Christ be seen, exalted in our lives? As we look through Numbers chapter 21 today, we know that God takes delight in His people's obedience. God takes delight in His people's obedience. That is what we observe from Numbers chapter 21. So this leads us to, it is in our full obedience to God that Christ is seen exalted in our lives. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God gave us an abundant life indeed as shared in the pastor's voice. But just as God did not teleport the ancient Israelites straight into the promised land after the bronze serpent experience, they still had to go through the journey of conquering the land one after another. We as the New Testament believers, we also God also did not teleport us straight into heaven after we receive His redemption through Jesus by faith. We still have to be on the grind, fighting our daily battles in big and small ways as life goes on. But Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. 
in the Father's house, Jesus has prepared a place for those who believed in Him. And this is the promise of God. Because that's, that's our promised land. But from now till then, how should we live our lives in a way that Jesus be seen exalted so that people may see Christ in us and come to faith? It is in our full obedience to God that Christ is seen exalted in our lives. So let our obedience to God begin here and now. May I invite our worship team come up and let me read to you 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 12 as we close. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against you, your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. What is the season of life that you are in now? What is the season of life you are currently in? And what causes dissatisfaction in you that causes you to start murmuring or complaining against God? Whatever it is, let us surrender all this in full obedience to God. It could be our struggles, failures, pride, successes, shattered dreams, sins, brokenness, or even our unbelief. God will take them all, change and transform them according to His will and for His glory. Because it is in our full obedience to God that Christ is seen exalted in our lives and this is how God's greatest love story ever told can flow through our lives the only thing we need to do is to respond to God in full obedience respond to God's leading in full obedience <laughs>